1: Welcome to Amicus, Slate's incredibly high minded Supreme Court podcast. I am Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's desperately low brow Supreme Court correspondent. And so this week, an off week at the court, we thought we would talk about movies and plays and how Supreme Court justices are suddenly the subject, weirdly, of both. Big news this week on the Supreme Court Circuit is that Natalie Portman has just been tapped to play Ruth Bader Ginsburg in an upcoming film by director Marielle Heller called On the Basis of Sex apparently about Ginsburg's early battles for gender equality in the law. Just a couple of weeks ago, HBO announced that Wendell Pierce will play Justice Clarence Thomas in Confirmation, a TV movie about his explosive 1991 confirmation battle. Kerry Washington, of Scandal, will play Anita Hill. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., a new play by John Strand called The Originalist is dramatizing an imagined relationship between Justice Antonin Scalia and a liberal law clerk. And this summer, we'll see the premiere of... Scalia slash Ginsburg, a comic opera inspired by the complicated relationship between the court's two most famous frenemies, Ginsburg and Scalia. The Natalie Portman film is huge news in SCOTUS land. The last time a sitting justice was the subject of a big, splashy movie or play was First Monday in October about a fictionalized first woman on the Supreme Court. That came out in 1981, the year real life Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman on the Supreme Court. But in 2015, with a full third of the court being suddenly depicted in movies or plays, can a biopic on Stephen Breyer be far behind? So today on the podcast, we are going to try to figure out what to make of this sudden explosion of Supreme Court dramatization. And we have two terrific guests to help guide the way. The first is John Collins. He's founder and director of the Elevator Repair Service Theater, one of New York's most highly acclaimed experimental theater companies. Last year, John won rave reviews for his production of Arguendo, the script of which reproduced the entirety of an actual oral argument verbatim. So, John,
2: welcome to Amicus. Thank you. This is so exciting for me.
1: (laughs) So let's talk about, you know, you, despite the fact that there is legalese and it is often impenetrable and that I will tell you as somebody who's often sitting at oral arguments that there are Mm -hmm. many people sleeping uh, (laughs) and and they are not always the justices. Uh, So I just wonder uh, how tell us a little bit about Arguendo uh, Elevator Repair Service. Uh, You are a wonk, right? You love the court Mm, and you are determined to do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, my my hobby of (laughs) collecting oral argument recordings from Oye.org, that great website that, you know, compiles it all for you, that went way back, and and it wasn't anything that I had ever imagined I would make into a play. It was just my little secret obsession. But I did, one of the many cases that I came across was Barnes versus Glenn Theater, and it did stand out to me as um, particularly entertaining, you know, this is a case about a group of erotic dancers in South Bend, Indiana, um, suing to be able to perform completely nude. Um, so there's a kind of absurd theatrical element to this thing from the get-go. You know, it's it's about a kind of theater. It's about a kind of performance. And uh, there's this amazing clash between the austerity and seriousness of the court and, um, you know, the absurdity of the case because it forced them to discuss whether or not uh, pasties and G-strings infringed upon, you know, your constitutional right to free speech. So, of course, that led to a lot of amazing hypotheticals, like Justice Kennedy's uh, adults-only car wash hypothetical <laughs> um, and other good ones. And I always wondered whether or not that humor and those crazy hypotheticals would actually create a kind of bridge to a lay audience, um, that it would be a way in to understanding the way the court works and thinks, and the way it thinks out loud in oral argument. I, I suspected that might make for good theater in this case.
1: So, so let's listen for one second to some uh, of arguendo, just so folks at home can hear how you took, I mean, verbatim mm-hmm. the transcript of an oral argument that was indeed about go-go dancers, uh, and you turned it into live theater. Let's have a listen.
3: Suppose someone wanted to increase a business at the car wash uh, <laughs> or in a bar and they hired a woman and now, now you sit, sit in this glass case. And this is an adults-only car wash. You uh, <laughs> sit, sit in this glass, glass case and attract the customers. Is, is that permitted? Uh,
2: Justice Kennedy, I think it would... If it was... Intended as expressive activity if it was performance dance. No, no, no,
3: it's just, 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 just what I said. The employer says, this is the job, you sit up there.
2: I, I think that the, 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 that would trigger First Amendment analysis. Whether the state could ban it or not would depend on the state's justifications.
3: Well, suppose he said, I've heard the arguments in the Supreme Court. You have to dance. And she said, I can't dance. And he said, well, just wander around when the music starts to play. <laughs> Well, Your Honor, I mean, there's a point in this question. What well, what is performance dance? What is it?
1: So, uh, my first question: uh, Do you know the entire transcript of Barnes versus Glen Theater, nineteen ninety one, by heart?
2: I, I know a, a lot of it. I think. <laughs> um.
1: So, so my my other question is: What is it that you are trying to communicate? I mean, this was the transcript you had, but the message here is. What, that the justices are nutty and these uh, hypotheticals that they spin out are just them kind of off their meds? Or was it something, <laughs> I mean, what, what is it that this says to you that makes this case so interesting?
2: Well, the 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 hypotheticals themselves in this case are pretty entertaining to listen to just because of where they have to go to to develop this logic about nude dancing and nudity versus pasties and g-strings but i you know i love the hypotheticals as a, a part of their whole process because they're so helpful they are actually instructive and and they are a window into the way the justices think so they require some real creativity sometimes and you know they may reveal things about the justices themselves who knows but really it's that's the window into the thinking and it's one of the ways the justices themselves open things up to the layperson
1: I love that. I love that. That that Not only does it kind of help probe on the doctrine side, but it does. It's a way of revealing their own anxieties and what their own (laughs) lives look like. I mean, Justice (laughs) Kennedy and the naked car wash, indelibly etched in my head now, uh, probably (laughs) – never recover.
2: It's a it's a time, too, where we get a, we always get a big laugh there in that part of the show when Ben says, and this is an adults-only car wash. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I always enjoyed telling people after the show that they got a big laugh in the courtroom on that, too.
1: So tell us a little bit about the challenge of taking a pretty dry doctrinal First Amendment question mm-hmm. and turning it into accessible theater that... Bridges the gap between mm-hmm. the u s Supreme Court and the rest of us
2: well, I think when we when we first started to work on it we we presented a a heavily edited version, and I was a little bit uh nervous about taking on you know every word of the argument because it's coded you know you you say renton and that means something you know this is another case that has some precedential value and relevance to this one. And everybody in the court knows what that means, but I didn't think my audience would. So I, I edited it a lot at first, but, um, but you know, eventually I, I wanted the audience to have the same experience that I have as a lay person, as a non-lawyer who, who loves to listen to oral argument. You know, it does, you do go underwater sometimes when you're listening to it. But I had a kind of faith that, especially in, in Barnes versus Glenn Theater, the way it keeps coming back around to really fundamental questions of what is speech? Is dance speech? Is nudity speech? And so one thing that we did, uh, you know, that my actors did was that we spent time in our rehearsals just studying those cases and and really trying to understand for ourselves everything that was being said so that even if our audience didn't follow every word of it, I felt like if the actors knew what they were talking about, then it would communicate that clarity on another level.
1: John, because this is the decidedly lowbrow amicus, um, I want to <laughs> go back to nudity, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. if I may. And I, and I want to play a clip from The People versus Larry Flint, mm-hmm. one of the all-time great uh, Supreme Court scenes rendered in movies. Mm-hmm. Here is Ed Norton playing Alec Isaacman. He's Larry Flint's lawyer, and he's in a back-and-forth with Justice Antonin Scalia in uh, a verbatim performance of what was in the transcript. Let's listen
0: a political cartoon that's over 200 years old. Um, It depicts George Washington riding on a donkey, being led by a man, and the caption caption suggests that this man is leading an ass to Washington.
3: I can handle that. I I think George can handle that. (laughs) But that's a far cry from committing incest with your mother in an outhouse. (laughs) I mean, there's no line between
0: the two? no, Justice Scalia. I would say there is no line between the two because really what you're talking about is a matter of taste and not law. Uh, as, as you yourself said, I believe, in Pope versus Illinois, uh, it's useless to argue about taste and even more useless to litigate it. And that is the case here. Uh, the jury has already determined for us that this is, is a matter of taste and not a matter of law because th- they've said that there is no libelous speech, that nobody could reasonably believe that Husser was actually suggesting that Jerry Falwell had sex with his mother. <laughs>
1: So, so again, uh, it's fascinating to me the extent to which um, sex <laughs> becomes yeah. a doorway into making the court comprehensible. And I think that clip does such a nice job of, you know, there was outright laughter in the courtroom. Yeah. Justice Scalia merrily joins in. Uh, and it, it's fascinating to me. I wonder if that uh, is part of what you were thinking in choosing this case that, you know, at the end of the day, there's something very, very profound about the tension between just talking about gross cartoons uh, and, Mm -hmm. you know, explicit sexual dancing and the loftiest marble godlike palace that is our Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, I I, I think that is part of what we were interested in in taking on this case. Um, You know, there's such a stark contrast. You know, you've got such low, low, low lowbrow and such high, high highbrow you know, a, a culture clash like that um, is going to be revealing. That's one thing that I've always I've always been interested in theatrically. You know, I like to throw things together on stage that don't belong together, and 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 the court did that for me in Barnes versus Glenn Theater.
1: So I, I think I want to ask this last question because it's the one that's been spinning through my head as I've thought about. You know, there's going to be a new Clarence Thomas movie. There's going to be a new um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie, and and, and that is is the court translatable? Or is this just going to be, you know, kind of a, a cute life story? Or is this really an opportunity to drill down and say, this is what it looks like. And it's not, you know, ER. It's a really yeah. different institution. Do you feel like you succeeded in arguendo in translating, if I can use that word, the work of the court to lay listeners?
2: Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I do really hope so. Uh, and I and I think that there is a kind of collective need for it to be translatable because, you know, people understand on some level how important the court's work is and, and its impact, but it is shrouded in secrecy, and it, the cases and most of the arguments are very technical and, and impenetrable. And so I hope more artists and writers and... Producers do take it on.
1: It, it, I think you've just hit on the paradox that I've been trying to noodle, which is you have this institution that relies heavily on costumes and red curtains, <laughs> uh, yep. and yet it's impossible to turn it into theater. Uh, I mean, you've done it, but it is sort of interesting. (laughs) But it resists it, yeah. It resists it, and it's interesting because if you think about how theatrical it is to sit in that chamber and see them pop out from behind this curtain as though it's kind of a puppet show, um, it's really fascinating that it requires a certain theatricality in order to be legitimate, and yet, as you say, completely resists theatricality in a different way
2: yeah, it's a kind of solemnity in their theatricality. and And you know from being in that room it's it's very the the air is electric, you know, and you've got all these guards walking around telling you to sit up straight and be quiet. And it's a special place. And it's a special live event that uh, the oral argument is.
1: John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. John Collins is director of the New York based Elevator Repair Service. Their new play, The Sound and the Fury, uh, opens this week at the Public Theater in New York. There are not many tickets left, so run. Don't walk to the box office. John, thank you so very much for joining us this week.
2: Thank you. This was a thrill.
1: Now, before we turn to our next guest, we want to give you a little taste of goings-on elsewhere in the Panoply Network this week. Here's a word from one of our sister podcasts. Hi, I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier. And in the latest episode, we'll talk about why sometimes it's a good idea to indulge in a modest splurge and how to cope with other people's bad moods. You can subscribe to us in iTunes.com Panoply. Here's another piece of panoply-related news we'd like to share. Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting, is getting ready for a live show in North Carolina. If you live near the Triangle region, come on out and watch hosts Allison Benedict and Dan Coyce on stage at Motor Co. in Durham on Sunday, June 7th. The evening's special guest will be Mac McCann of the band Superchunk. He's going to talk with Allison and Dan about indie rock dadhood, his new solo album, Nonbelievers, and of course, parenting triumphs and fails. For tickets, go to Slate.com slash mom And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get a 30% discount on your ticket purchase. Our next guest today is Thane Rosenbaum. He's an essayist, novelist, and law professor who also directs the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society at NYU Law School. And we wanted him on the show on this topic because he thinks about the intersection of law and culture and uh mass media more than most people do. So first of all, Thane, welcome to Amicus. We're delighted to have you.
0: Very grateful to be on the program with you, Dahlia.
1: And I think we just want to start with this basic question, which is we have the most singularly important institution in America, the U.S. Supreme Court. It's been around for a long time. And when you look at the list of movies, even books, uh, certainly TV shows that try to capture what happens inside this building. That list is very short. And so
0: rare indeed to see a feature film about the Supreme Court.
1: And and, and I guess the question is, why? Why have we utterly failed to capture this one branch of government that is so consequential uh, on film or in plays or on television?
0: Well, mostly because it's what happens the business of it the Supreme Court is really very undramatic. You know, uh trials, uh we know even from going back to Oedipus Rex uh and the Oresteia trilogy from Aeschylus. Uh you know, there there's natural drama in a trial, two parties pitted against each other, each represented by counsel, an authority, a judge who renders an ultimate opinion, the public serving the role as a juror, as well as those sitting in the gallery. These things are very powerful, very emotional, and very accessible to people who didn't go to law school, who are not members of the legal profession. Uh, Unfortunately, the Supreme Court is the very opposite. It deals in very technical aspects of the law. Uh, as we know, the mo- the biggest work of the Supreme Court is really done naughty, e- it's off the bench with the reading of briefs and memo bench opinions and memos from their clerks. Uh, and you don't really have two dueling attorneys in the same way pacing around the courtroom like gladiators trying to appeal and advocate on behalf of their clients to uh, jurors who are just simply members of the public the, instead you have nine you know very specialized very elite members of the legal profession who speak the law the language of the law where the facts are really not all that important but instead the technical nuances and you know legalistic principles of the law is what's being discussed before the court
1: And yet, and yet, uh, this month, we look around and suddenly Natalie Portman is going to play Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we have a movie in production about Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. We have a play about Antonin Scalia, the originalist. We have an opera about Scalia and Ginsburg. So is this... Uh, some kind of outlier moment? Are we in a moment in history where suddenly everybody's looking at the justices and at the court? Or has this always happened? Have individual justices somehow captured public attention?
0: Well, it's a good question, Dahlia. First of all, there was a Lawrence Fishburne play in 2011 that HBO filmed, but it was a one-person play of Thurgood Marshall. Um, and that's, to me, the, the closest analog to what we're seeing now. But again, it was a one-person play that was ultimately filmed. And what Thurgood Marshall and Justice Ginsburg have in common is that they were crusading attorneys first on behalf of, of, of a certain group of people, uh, a disenfranchised or discriminated group, whether it's uh, Civil Rights America and Thurgood Marshall's work on behalf of the Legal Defense Fund of the uh, NAACP or uh, Justice Ginsburg's work with the ACLU on behalf of women. So crusading attorneys who uh, end up on the Supreme Court make for dramatic characters.
1: And yet it's funny to me, Thane, because I think about on this show, the justices we talk about all the time, and they're not – Scalia and Ginsburg, right? It's it's Justice Kennedy. So it's interesting to me that the sort of smaller than life justices are the ones in some sense who are the engine of what is kind of the drama of the court if you look at the court not from a cultural perspective. But then when you look at the court as a matter of theater, uh, the folks who are getting an enormous amount of attention are not the ones necessarily who are making an enormous difference on the bench.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's interesting, but it's emblematic of what the law is, you know. And one of the reasons the difference between law and culture and literature, Uh, you know, a number of years ago, I did an essay for the Times, New York Times, about the difference between a a lawyer's writing life and the writer's life. Uh, And the difference is is that the world of the law is based on you know technical compliance narrowing the scope of issues. Everything is about narrowing. And novelists, playwrights, film directors are about expanding the human drama, you know, opening up the canvas, looking at much deeper levels of emotional complexity. That doesn't happen in the law. Uh, it's only when the law can be opened does it when it becomes dramatic. That's when it becomes interesting to to uh, civilians when you can see the, the the humanity behind the people who make these decisions because they have themselves compare compelling life stories. You know that's sort of the irony, Dalia, when President Obama first appointed Sonia Sotomayor. Remember, he said something that became very controversial. He said. She has a compelling life story, and therefore she would show empathy. And this became a huge issue I remember. among Republicans. I remember. This is not the basis of a judicial appointment. This is, you know, ridiculous for him to invoke the words empathy or compelling, you know, life story. It's about your ability to judge. Now, you know, for people like you and me, we understand this is absurd because, you know, we want our judges to be human. We don't want them to be robed robots. We want them to have histories that will inform the decisions of the Supreme Court. Hey, I've always thought there should be a novelist on the Supreme Court. I I mean that. Precisely because the novelist is the person who spends a lot of his or her day thinking about the human drama and and emotional complexity.
1: It, it strikes me listening to you that one thing we should do from our amicus assignment desk is tell some law student to write an opera about Anthony Kennedy. Uh, it practically writes itself, I think. <laughs> um, and certainly I think Justice Kennedy would love it. Yeah. Um, harder to write an opera about Stephen Breyer, but yes. that can be a- amicus assignment desk for next year. Um, I, I want to flip the question a little bit, Thane, because we've been talking a lot about how popular culture penetrates the court. I, I want to think about how the justices interact with popular culture. And I think that we probably both agree that the justices have a vested interest in not being individuals in not singling themselves out. They want to, you know, present themselves as nine brains and vats who are neutral arbiters and, you know, balls and strikes. Uh, all the way down. And I'm thinking now of how the transcripts uh, used to come out and just, they didn't identify individual justices. They would say the court asks the question because the justices had a vested interest in kind of institutionally saying, we are not nine individuals, we are the court. And yet uh, the justices do step out of that role of umpire and get involved and mix it up a little. And uh, in researching this show, I found this amazing moment Amazing of Justice uh, Harry Blackman portraying Justice Joseph Story in the movie Amistad, uh, 1997, Steven Spielberg's movie. And, and, and here is this moment when an actual Supreme Court justice plays another actual Supreme Court justice. Let's play it because uh, it kind of gives me chills.
3: In the case of the United States of America versus the Armistad Africans, it is the opinion of this court that our treaty of 1795 with Spain, on which the prosecution has primarily based its arguments, is inapplicable. While it is clearly stipulated in Article 9 that, and I quote, sea ships and cargo are to be returned entirely to their proprietary, the end of quote, it has not been shown to the court's satisfaction that these particular Africans fit that description. We are then left with the alternative, that they are not slaves and therefore cannot be considered merchandise, but are rather free individuals with certain legal and moral rights, including the right to engage in insurrection against those who would deny them their freedom.
1: So, so Thane, that seems like to me a unique moment in the intersection of the Supreme Court and popular culture. Tell me a little bit about what you think when you hear that.
0: Well, first of all, you and I know we've talked about this before. It's a chilling scene, especially if you realize that's a, a presently sitting Supreme Court justice playing the role of, of a prior Supreme Court, like among the early Supreme Court justices. I don't know how many people realize that that was a Supreme Court justice who was playing the role of a Supreme Court justice, but I will say it's the only scene of its kind. Uh, The only thing that's close to that is a judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, But in that case, um, Spencer Tracy is actually playing a federal district judge who gets shipped off to Nuremberg to play the role of one of the judges in the cases against the the judges and lawyers and attorney general of Germany. Mm And he then has a very similar experience where he's reading the opinion of the court in a very dramatic way. Uh, Those are the only two movies that I know of where you see the idea of a Supreme Court justice rendering an opinion to the public – and remember, as you and I know, that's you know generally not what happens right they go they go back and then they deliberate in this case, they do the same thing that you get in a trial. you get the equivalent of at the end of it. The judge just somehow issues miraculously a well crafted opinion. Um, I was thinking about something you said earlier. Uh, Dahlia, about, you know, justices are invested in not being, you know, private solo individuals. But there are some examples that make for very dramatic moments uh, that might have made good television uh drama or film. Uh, I'm thinking of former Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist. I can't remember the case. You'll probably remember it. It had something to do with the Family Leave Act.
1: Right. Family Medical uh, Leave Act. Yep.
0: Yeah, there you go. And I forgot the name of the case, but it was sort of fascinating because he, uh, during the oral argument and in his opinion, ruled in favor of working mothers and that, that, that they should be entitled, I forgot what the nature of the case was, but that to expand the entitlement To uh, payments to working mothers, a family leave. Uh, And everyone, you know, conservatives wondered, how is that possible? Why would a guy like Rehnquist want to expand this government program to single women? And what he didn't say, but people know, is that his daughter was going through a a divorce and was separated from her husband. And she herself was a high-powered lawyer in Washington. And she had to call upon the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to go pick up her daughters every day after school for a while. And the, Grandpa Rehnquist, not Chief Justice Rehnquist, but Grandpa Rehnquist, understood the burdens of women who go through divorce and still have to work, and how are they supposed to handle child care. Uh, and he, the, the, the humanity of his own experience, his own daughter's experience, humanized that and turned what might have otherwise been a stodgy, opaque, you know b- incredibly boring opinion into something that had real life to it because he understood the consequences of women who are 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 separated from husbands
1: Same. I would love to hear your thoughts on why it matters that we're about to have a Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie starring Natalie Portman, why it matters that we're going to watch this summer uh, plays about uh, Justice Scalia and originalism and Justice Ginsburg. Why does it matter to us as a society to have access to these movies about uh, justice in the Supreme Court?
0: The reason it matters is because artists see the world in a very different way than everyone else. And it's important to when – the, when the artist uh, uh, points a lens at the law, they tend to look at things that we would otherwise miss or ignore. And one of those things is the human dimension or questions about morality, uh, what the difference between what is legally correct and what morally feels right – Uh, And so the artist always looks at these moral questions, always looks at these questions of the human drama that the law itself always ignores. It's certainly not something um, that is taught in law school that it's ever really openly spoken of among lawyers. Um, And then the other idea, which is why these depictions matter, is, is because they oftentimes express a longing of individuals of what they want their lawyers to be. Uh, and that's actually the reason why you're seeing the Ginsburg film, and that's why we've seen Thurgood Marshall, because it's aspirational. Uh, when we see these cultural depictions, it taps into a kind of human longing for a legal system that would treat us in a different way, or lawyers who would represent us as real individuals and people. And the humanizing of the experiences of, say, a, a Ginsburg is going to be incredibly popular for people because they want to see what were the experiences that led this woman to ultimately sit on the Supreme Court, because that's the kind of lawyer we want to represent us. And I think it's that aspirational idea, it's that uh, impulse and and desire, the human longing for a, a legal system that understands us as individuals and people that makes these movies important.
1: So that's a perfect segue uh, Thane, to my question, because you have had uh, the opportunity as part of the Forum on Law, Culture and Society to be able to sit down with two uh, sitting justices and talk about their favorite films uh, with Sonia Sotomayor, who said that hers was uh, 12 Angry Men. And then with Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, whose favorite film is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And so I wonder if, first of all, is this a way of them signaling to the world that they are real people because they watch movies? And what deeper thing did they tell you about these films?
0: It's a good question. You know, in all instances for the Folks Film Festival that we run for the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society, I usually pick the films uh, and I pick the guests somewhat around the idea of the film. When it comes to Supreme Court justices, I let the Supreme Court Justice pick the film. This is your call. Uh, And Sotomayor picked uh, 12 Angry Men And the way we do it is the audience sits and watches the movie with a Supreme Court Justice, and then the lights come on, a Supreme Court Justice and I take the stage, and we talk about why the film is important and why importantly, more importantly, why is it important to the justice. And Sotomayor said some very interesting things about Twelve Angry Men. First of all, she said it was the film that a boyfriend in high school took her to see Twelve Angry Men. And when she saw the movie, she knew then uh, that she wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, it had that kind of, this is at the time, remember, this is a young girl who grew up in a, on a housing project in the Bronx, young Puerto Rican girl. Remember also, the movie is about the prosecution of a young Puerto Rican boy for having killed his father. Boy is barely in the movie, you just see his very uh, fearful face at the end before the jurors go off into the jury room uh, to deliberate. And so it's a very powerful film, and many everyone knows is an iconic film by Sidney Lumet, but you can imagine what it was for a young Latina, <laughs> a budding, wise Latina, to see the power of what it means to have 12 individuals stand in judgment over someone who is from an otherwise discriminated, persecuted class. I also think it's important to remember, 12 Angry Men has no scene in the actual courtroom. Oh, it's only about the jury room. So you'd say, well, you know, why is this so important to her? It wasn't even, it. what's dramatic is the 12 non-lawyers, angry men. And what are they angry about? They're angry about the facts of the case and about their own prejudices and about their own human, you know, failures and their own human experiences that brought them to the courtroom. And that Sotomayor picked that idea up, that she understand the humanity that's on display both in trials and in jury rooms, right? She didn't even, you know. It's not like she said, "I watched episodes of Perry Mason and I thought that was cool." She said, "I think it's really interesting to watch civilians, laypersons, serving in that role." I think it's enorm- you know, incredibly interesting that that meant something to her because it's not what's the drama of Twelve Angry Men is a human, the human emotion. Uh, in the jury room, has nothing to do with what's happening on the courtroom.
1: Let's stop for a minute and listen to a tiny little bit of 12 Angry Men.
3: I vote uh, not guilty. Oh, what? What are you talking about? I mean, we're all going crazy in here or something. The kid is guilty. Why don't you listen to the facts? Tell him, will you? This is getting to be a joke. The vote is eight to four, favor of guilty. And what is this, love your underprivileged brother week or
0: something? I don't know if you want to talk about this, but Breyer's decision to do The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was equally powerful. Uh, He didn't explain why he wanted to talk about the film, but he wanted to explain why the film was important. And one of the things, since the film is really about frontier justice, where the law doesn't really exist, he said, you know, and the, the only law that exists is the law of the gun, Justice Breyer of the Supreme Court, who is perceived to be on the left, took an extraordinary position. He said, you know, this movie teaches us that sometimes you just have to stop talking because the only thing that will work is force. (laughs) (laughs) You know, who knew? (laughs) He says, you know, when it came to civil rights, you know what you needed to do? Send in the National Guard. He says this. He says, you know, we like to spend our time talking about how debating and legislation and bringing up arguments is going to win the day. But sometimes, you know, you need to bring in a big gun. And that was an astonishing moment for everyone in the room because, you know, you didn't think that he was, you know, he's not a pro Second Amendment absolutist. But he is pointing out that sometimes justice has to prevail in some way. And if it's not working through the law, it has to be extrajudicial. It has to come from, you know, the the world of frontier justice or taking matters into your own hands. And it was really an amazing moment because he was acknowledging, here's why this film appeals to us. You know, that Liberty Valance (laughs) essentially deserved to be shot
1: Uh, Thane, I think there is no better way to wrap up a podcast on the intersection between the Supreme Court and popular culture than the mental image of Justice Stephen Breyer riding off into the sunset with a (laughs) pistol in each hand. Uh, You've just made my whole day. Uh, Thane Rosenbaum is an essayist. He's a law professor, and uh, he directs the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society at NYU Law School. Thane, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Dahlia.
1: And that's going to do it for today's very lowbrow edition of Amicus. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. You can send us email at amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We love your letters. Or you can always leave a review on our iTunes page to help the uninitiated discover what they've been missing. Just search Amicus in the iTunes store and click the ratings and reviews tab. We really appreciate your support. Thanks to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants—